Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. As we approach God's Word, let's take a prayerful breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Listen to God's Word this day. Please join me in our unison prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. We turn to God's word this morning. Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 119, verses 97 through 105. Let us listen to God's word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from evil, from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And from the book of the second Timothy, reading from the third chapter, verses 4 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, we give you thanks to be together. We give you thanks for the gift of your word, for the gift of your love. We pray that you would help us to better understand, to better live. We pray indeed that your spirit might be moving, that your holy word might be heard through these very human words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to the fourth of the five questions in our series, Conversations with a Skeptic. As in previous weeks, we're speaking not just to the skeptics outside in the world, but those in our hearts. How can we rely on a Bible that has such disturbing passages? By disturbing, we can be referring to different things. For some people, the Bible is disturbing because of the inconsistencies and the apparent errors. For example, there is a discrepancy between the accounts of Judah's death 
in the Gospel of Matthew and the Acts of the Apostles, Matthew tells us that Judas hanged himself. Acts tells us that Judas fell headlong and his middle burst open and his bowels fell out. I've always thought that he had a middle school person helping him write that. <laughs> Others will point to the times when one of the New Testament writers quotes the Old Testament, but when you line up the quotations, they don't exactly match. On the other hand, there's some passages in the Bible that are disturbing in content, particularly in the Old Testament. There are these passages that some have called texts of terror because they talk about slavery and seem to condone abuse or violence. For example, the call to kill all of the Amalekites, it's in 1 Samuel 15, man, woman, and child. Let us be clear, those passages are disturbing. If we do not agree that they're disturbing and even dangerous passages in the Bible, then we're probably not really paying attention. How can we rely on the Bible in light of all that? We can go like Thomas Jefferson and try to put together a Bible that just has the parts we like. He did that. But that's not what we Presbyterians do. So to wrestle with that question, we need to clarify how we think of the Bible. And there are two things I want to highlight this morning. First, we believe that the Bible is inspired, not dictated, infallible, not inerrant. The Bible is not a single book delivered by God all at once, as the Book of Mormon is believed by the people of the Church of Latter-day Saints to have been delivered to Joseph Smith. Instead, we understand that the Bible is a diverse theological library with a wide variety of writings, including teachings and poetry, stories and history, letters, and more. These writings were circulated then collected through more than 10 centuries. Wow. But even that explanation of the Bible's diversity does not fully capture the complexity of how the Bible came to be. First, oral accounts were passed down from generation to generation. Ancient peoples relied on memory much more than we do today. Then there came a point when someone started to write down those oral accounts. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, he tells his readers these words, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitness and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you. Some books, like Luke, come from one writer. Others come from multiple writers. When you read the book of Genesis closely in Hebrew, and I realize not all of us can, I can't anymore, but when you do, the scholars tell us that it's easy to see that there are four separate strands woven together. The book of Isaiah was clearly written across multiple generations. The first 39 chapters occurred before the Babylonian exile, which began in 587. The last 27 chapters began, is told about 50 or 70 years later after that exile. Writing 
editing, collecting, compiling. Even that was not the end. At some point, there were councils of rabbis and then later councils of church leaders who would gather and decide which books would be considered part of the canon. That is, should be included in what we now know as a Bible and which should be excluded. Those decisions were primarily made bottom-up, by the way. That is, it wasn't that this group suddenly got together and decided and told everybody, that's what you have to do. No, when they came to these councils, they brought from their region, these are the books, the writings that our people have found to be authoritative, and they sought a consensus. I describe that whole process not to give you a lecture on history, but to explain this that when we say the Bible is inspired, we are saying that the Holy Spirit was at work throughout that process. And not just a dictation the first time one writer put it down on papyrus. And we're claiming that God could work through all of these ordinary human, fallible human beings to get God's word to us. Just as God called ordinary, flawed human beings to be leaders and spokespersons, like Abraham and Sarah, or Jacob and Moses, or Peter and Paul, just as God would entrust God's son to a young peasant couple. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I would have done it. But God is consistent. God chooses to work through fallible human beings even with God's holy word, the Bible. So sure, there are errors. When the gospel writer Mark quoted the Old Testament, he could not take a book off his shelf. He would have to go to the synagogue and go to the scrolls that were locked away, hardly practical. Instead, he relied on his memory. And when those scribes in the monasteries were copying by hand manuscripts, sure there were errors made going back and forth from the text to what they were writing. That's why biblical scholars get as many manuscripts as they can to compare before they make a translation into a modern language. We Presbyterians do not claim that the Bible is inerrant, that is, without errors. But we do claim that the Bible is infallible. That is, it will not let us down. John Calvin was too much of a biblical scholar not to notice those errors and discrepancy. But as he wrote 500 years ago, no, this is not just some modern thinker. 500 years ago, he wrote, the errors and discrepancies are inconsequential to our salvation. The Bible has multiple voices multiple perspectives. We have four Gospels, not one. As Michael Linval, a Presbyterian pastor and author, writes, think of the Bible not as some great giant tome that was handed down all at once to God's people, but instead think of it as a great conversation of people who have witnessed what God has done in history. They certainly don't see everything the same way. They converse with each other. They argue with each other. They agree with each other. And sometimes they disagree. And they're always quoting each other. When you think of it, these differing perspectives speak to the Bible's authenticity. If the Bible was one big hoax, as some skeptics contend, then wouldn't you want to clean it up? 
Wouldn't you want to kind of reduce it from four Gospels to one and harmonize the whole, get rid of all those discrepancies? But when the historic councils met to determine what would be included in the Bible, they held on to this diversity of witness, as one of my colleagues has written, because they knew that God could not be captured by a single witness, and they trusted God to work through those ambiguities and mysteries. They trusted God to work in the ambiguities and mysteries because we believe that when we speak of divine inspiration, we're not just talking about how the words get on the paper. We are also talking about how they come off the paper. How when I open the Bible, I can read, or when I hear the Bible, I can actually hear how, what God wants me to hear. I may not find what I want to find, but I can hear God's word for me at this point. Now, what I hear this time may be different than what I heard the last time I read this passage, and it may be different from what I will hear in a month or two, but that's not because God changes, and it's not because the Bible changes. It's because that my circumstances, what I need to hear changes. That's the way it works for God the way it works for the inspired word. Second, we believe that the Bible is unique and authoritative. God speaks through the words of Scripture to communicate with us in a way that God doesn't do in any other human writing. As the psalmist declares, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. As 2 Timothy declares that we just heard, Scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for equipping us to be disciples. These words, the words of Scripture, have not only the power to guide us, they actually have the power to change us and transform us. Several years ago, a graduate student in the University of California in political science walked into a Presbyterian pastor and said that she was ready to be baptized. He asked her why she was ready to take this step, and this is what she told him, that she had actually been a Marxist and an atheist when she enrolled in her graduate studies. But for, she had to take a course on Christianity and to give it you know, it's full due. She actually picked up the Gospels and read it. And when she did, the minister writes, it changed her forever because she met Jesus Christ, who proved to be far more radical than Karl Marx. If you were to ask me, what is the greatest miracle in the church in the past 500 years? I would say that so many African Americans became Christians after they were brought here to be enslaved. The slave masters wanted them to have a Bible. They wanted them to hear the gospel because they thought they could use that Bible to dominate them, to keep them docile. The miracle is that when these enslaved people encountered the Bible, they discovered something that their slave masters never wanted them to hear. The story of Israelite slaves being delivered by God into freedom led by Moses. The idea that Jesus Christ died for all so that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. The slave masters tried to censor then what was preached or would only have certain texts that could be preached to the slaves, but it was too late. 
the Holy Spirit was already at work speaking through the words of Scripture. This Bible is powerful stuff when actually opened and read, but that does not mean that it is easy to understand or follow. I raise my hand, like many of you, to Taylor's question. Their divergent voices, <coughs> ambiguities and mysteries, disturbing passages. And one might well ask, do you have to be a biblical scholar? Do you have to be seminary trained to really understand the Bible? No, is what we Presbyterians have always claimed. That's why the Protestant reformers, one of the first thing they did, in fact, it was really the first thing that Luther did, one of the first things that Calvin did was to translate the Bible out of Latin, which only a few people could read, into the language that the people could understand. It's why one of the first things that the Protestant reformers in Geneva, Switzerland, and Scotland did was to provide public education, at least some basic level for everybody, so that they could read and so that they could read the Bible. It wasn't just for priests and monks. How then do we read the Bible? In a few moments, we're going to share together in the affirmation of faith words from the Presbyterian Declaration of Faith. And those, these words can be helpful as a guide. First, we rely upon the Holy Spirit. Each week in worship, we have a prayer for illumination. And to quote Michael Linval again, this is not just some pious gesture that we've thrown in there. It's an acknowledgement that both the preacher and the congregation stand in need of the Spirit in order to preach about and understand what is read. We should pray a prayer like that every time we open the Bible, really. Not just so that we might understand, not just so that we might find what we're hoping to find, but so that we will hear what God wants us to hear, what we need to hear. Second, we use the best available methods to understand the scriptures in their historical and cultural settings. It helps to know that when Jesus is talking about talents in one of his parables, he's talking about money and not something that will get you on the masked singer television show. It's important to know that when Jesus speaks directly to a woman, like a woman at the well, or invites Mary to sit at his feet, like any other student of a rabbi, he is doing something radically different from what any other male rabbi would do in that culture and how he was treating women. It helps us to remember, as someone has written, that God not only speaks to humanity, but also through humanity, using ordinary men and women bound to particular times and places. In other words, we have to separate what is time bound to that particular culture, that particular time, that particular worldview, and what is timeless when we're reading the scriptures. For example, in the, in the days of the Old and New Testaments, the only way really to respond to middle illness was to bring in someone to exercise demons. We now know something different. We now know that sometimes medications, sometimes counseling, sometimes operations, sometimes all of those things can help. And so we don't think we have to confine our response to calling in a pastor or priest to exercise demons. We're in a different world with a different understanding. 
Or when Paul speaks about homosexual relations being unnatural, we know now that the ancient world had no understanding that sexual orientation could be actually the way people are made by God. And we know from Genesis 1 that what God makes is good. Third, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the final appeal must be to the authority of Christ. We cannot read a single text in isolation. God gave us a library for a reason. So beware of anyone who comes quoting one verse as a way of solving any particular issue. We must always listen to the whole of Scripture, listen to things in context. And all Scripture is to be read ultimately through the lens of Christ. His example, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. So it is that when we look at the massacre of the Amalekites through the lens of Christ, we can say with great confidence that that's not what God wants us to do today. Jesus Christ did not massacre his enemies. Jesus Christ died for his enemies. Finally, we listen to the scriptures with fellow believers in community, past and present. We cannot interpret scripture alone, or we cannot really gain as much as when we interpret it with others. We need the variety of perspectives that each other brings here. That is why preachers, why Carrie and I have learned that we always benefit to have had a Bible study before we write that sermon. And we need the perspective that people from different times have had. We listen to voices of the past, and we need to have the perspective that people in different cultures or different parts of society have because they can give us a richer understanding of the scriptures. I was so struck being in Honduras and leading a Bible passage, realizing that those folks there had a much closer lifestyle than the lifestyle of those first disciples back in first century and they probably had all kinds of insights and understandings into that scripture that I didn't, coming from middle-class America. Reading the scriptures with others, with the Holy Spirit, this way, can help us rely on the Bible despite those disturbing passages. But let me add one further thing. Our goal in reading the Bible is not to remove or explain away everything that disturbs us. Sometimes the Bible is meant to disturb us, to disrupt our complacent status quo. As Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they do not understand, but the passages that bother me most are the ones I do understand. Love your enemies. Forgive those who hurt you. Sell all you have and give to the poor. Reading those scriptures should disturb us, should shake us up. Because God did not give us the Bible so that we can be comfortable. God gave us the Bible so that we can be transformed and more Christ-like. We can rely on the Bible, even though parts of it disturb us, but we must also rely on the Bible so that it will disturb us. If we're never disturbed by God's word, then we're not listening. And then we'll never be transformed by the one who came to make all things 
new, even us. Amen. Thank you for listening to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll join us for worship on Sunday morning. For more information about our congregation and our ministries, please contact the church office. Now go in peace.